Matthew chapter 4. We're picking up the second half, so we'll be starting at verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while we're walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, Jesus, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction upon the, upon the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. And the crowd followed them from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Great. Well, um, let me add my welcome uh, to that of James's. It's so great to see so many of you here this morning. Um, before we get into this passage together, let me pray uh, again and ask for God's help uh, as we hear from his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to hear from your words. Lord, thank you that your word is alive and active, Lord, and through it you speak right to our very hearts. Lord, we pray this morning um, as we look at this passage together, Lord, that you would be teaching us, you'd be encouraging us, you'd be challenging us when necessary. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use this to help us see more and to love Jesus more. So Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, we're picking up uh, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus straight after where we finished last week. Uh, we saw Jesus go into the wilderness um, to be tempted, um, and now we find ourselves right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's had his baptism, he's had his temptation, and now here he is ready to start his ministry for real, to begin doing what he came to earth to do. As we look at this passage, uh, we're going to look at two particular things. Uh, two things, uh, where he goes and what he says. We're going to think of his movements and what that tells us about him. And what he says, again, to help us see more of who he is and what he's come to do. So here's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at the movement of the king. Look down and see how this section begins. Look at verse 12 with me. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So we've got John, who's mentioned here, and that is John the Baptist. And he's been 
arrested. We're not told why, particularly here, but as we read on, if we get to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew tells us that even though John was popular with the people, he had a great following, those in power didn't like him. In fact, particularly King Herod, John had been public in his criticism um, of Herod, telling him that it was unlawful to take um, Herod's brother's wife as his own. Herod clearly didn't like this, uh, and so took him and arrested him and throws him in jail. So John's arrested, and, and what does Jesus do? Look at the verses again. He withdraws into Galilee. He goes to live in Capernaum. So he leaves Nazareth, and he heads up north, right into the, the back country towards Capernaum. And so it might look like on first reading, and I certainly thought this, that it looks like Jesus is running away. Suddenly something bad has happened to John, someone who's just baptized him, a member of his own family, and so he's thought, right, I'm out of here. I need to get away from this. It seems like that could be the case. He's getting out, heading out into the wilderness, up into the north of the country, where he won't be found by any of the authorities. Now, any time we read in the Bible of particular place names, I know it can be easy to switch off, can't it? Here are some old first century Israeli geography. Truly, that can't really make that much difference. But stick with me, because actually what Matthew's telling us here about the movement of Jesus is actually really important. See, this area of Israel up in the north, given here its ancient names of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, had been a part of the land where there had been issues going along for quite a long time. Right back to when the people first came out of Egypt and those two tribes settled up north, they in particular hadn't followed God's command to remove the Canaanite people from the land. They'd ended up intermarrying with them and had got involved with pagan worship right from the very beginning. See, it was an area where God wasn't worshipped as he should have been right from the start. But this area up in the north was also the first place where any of the big invading powers would come through into the country. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then more recently to this, the Romans, they, they all came and attacked through the north of the country. See, this was an area with, with an intense history of oppression, more so even than the rest of the country of Israel. This is where things were, for most of the time, at their worst. Many of the people who had lived here had been taken away into captivity. And as that land would have been left empty, what happens? Well, other people from the other nations come and move in. See, this area in the north was a, was a melting pot of different nationalities and ethnicities, which is why when we read in the second that it is often referred to Galilee of the Gentiles, largely populated with non-Jews. And because of that, this area was, was looked down upon by the rest of the country. If you read the beginning of John's gospel, um, when Nathaniel is told by one of the other disciples that the Messiah has come from Nazareth, he remarks, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's kind of this running joke. This area was the, the butt of all the jokes. It was the, the Dundee of Israel, right? The place that no one really wanted to be and no one really liked. Historically and spiritually, this was a dark part of the country. 
a dark and a ridiculed place. And that's why it's fascinating. That's where Jesus heads first. He doesn't go straight to Jerusalem, where we might expect. He goes up north. Jesus heads straight up here. And Matthew tells us why. He's not running away to find shelter. Look again at what Matthew says. Look at verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. See what Jesus is doing here? He's actively moving towards the darkness. He's actively going to the people who are dwelling in darkness, the people living in the region and shadow of death. He's moving towards them. Why? To bring light. See, Jesus' movement here isn't just because he's running away. This is a deliberate plan. This movement is, is almost symbolic of Jesus' entire ministry to bring light to people living in darkness, to bring light into a dark world. He's not hiding from the searchlight of the authorities. He's going there to shine a spotlight. He's saying, I'm here to shine my light where it is darkest. Like a jeweler places a bright diamond on a black cushion. Like a giant telescope is placed high up on a hill far away from any light pollution. Jesus goes to where things are darkest so that his light will shine the brightest. He came to bring light into the world and to bring light into the darkness of our own hearts. So I don't know what comes into your mind when I say that phrase, the, the darkness in our own hearts. Because I'm sure that will vary for all of us. Maybe when I say that phrase, you think of a, a sin that you're clinging to something that you're holding deep inside that no one else knows about, but it weighs you down. It feels dark. Maybe it's shame. Shame of decisions that you've made, shame of people that you've hurt, things you've done in the past, or things that are going on now. Maybe you've got a darkness that is a, a heavy weight of anxiety and uncertainty. Or maybe it's a it's a darkness inside that has been caused by hurt and abuse from others. See, we're surrounded by a world full of darkness, but we have darkness in ourselves too. See, whatever it is, we all have something. But the wonderful thing about Jesus and that we see here is that there is no darkness that Jesus cannot bring light to. There's no darkness that can separate you from him. No darkness too great that he cannot overcome. There's no dark place where you can go where he'll not be able to find you and bring you out from. Jesus is the great light who brings light to our dark world. And all we need to do is to let him in. For those of you who are, like myself, not mourning people, 
that you'll know one of the worst things to happen is this, someone comes in and needs to wake you up. The room's nice and dark. Someone comes in, rips open the curtains, flick the lights on. It's a horrible, horrible experience. What's the first thing that you do? Quickly hide back under the covers, right? Block out that light, stay in that darkness. Burns your eyes, you wanna stay in that place. See, when bright light comes, it can be painful for that moment, but very quickly we adjust and we get used to it. And in the same way, it's true for the darkness in our own hearts. If we're to be honest, and we're to be open about the darkness inside of us, if that's exposed, part of us just wants to, to cover and hide ourselves away. When light comes and exposes our darkness, we want to hide. But Jesus came to us in our darkness to show that there is a better way. There is a way to be free from darkness. And that can only be found in him. And how does Jesus prove that? How does Jesus prove that he is the one who can take away our darkness? Well, after staying in Galilee for the next 16 chapters, he heads to Jerusalem where things get darker and darker. As Jesus goes to be arrested, to be abused, to be ridiculed and hung on a cross, he takes all of our darkness on himself. He takes the wrath of God upon himself because of the darkness in our own hearts. We see the symbol of that as the whole country is plunged into physical darkness for three hours in the middle of the day. Jesus takes that darkness, but then three days later, he rises again. And on that glorious morning, as he's risen, where does he tell the women to tell the disciples to meet him? Back in Galilee. The disciples go and they see the risen Lord Jesus back where it all began, in the land of darkness, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. There he is, now risen in glory. They see him risen and they see him taken up into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, to prepare a place for them. They see him in perfect light. See, Jesus has come to bring light to our darkness. He's experienced it. He knows it. He understands it. He's taken it on himself. He's taken the darkness of our sin so that we can have light now and forever. So friends, let's be people who are open and ready to let the light of Jesus in. It may be painful. It may be messy. It may be hard to open ourselves up. But if you want freedom and relief for the dark things that we struggle with, you're not going to be able to sort it out by yourself. But there is someone who can. Jesus can. He came to bring light into a dark place. So we see through Jesus' movement through the land to the land of darkness, he fulfills what the prophet said, and he shows that he's come to bring light in our darkness. That's the movement of Jesus. Here's the second thing, which we're going to spend the rest of our time on. We're going to see, we've seen his movement, and we're going to see the message of the king. Look down at verse 17. See what it says? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from that time on, uh, once Jesus gets up to Capernaum, he begins to preach. 
He's done his thing in private, and now he's ready to go public. He's done his preseason training, and he's ready to hit the ground running. And notice what it is that he's preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, you'll recognize as you'll recognize that that's exactly the same thing that John the Baptist was preaching. Have a flick back to chapter three, verse two. John says the same, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is preaching that same message. Repent, turn away from your sin, do a 180. Leave behind all that takes you away from God. Now we thought in detail what that meant and what that looks like a few weeks ago. So we're not gonna focus on that now, but it is important to note that that message is the same. Repentance is the way into the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't just preach here what to turn from. He also shows what to turn to. Look back again at the passage. We'll pick up from verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So we're introduced here to two brothers, Peter and Andrew. Normal, uneducated, working class fishermen, sort of the earth kind of guys. There was nothing special about them. They were just ordinary guys who Jesus goes up to and he says, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So the first part of the king's message was repent. The second part, he calls people to follow He does it to Peter and Andrew, and he does the same to another set of brothers. Flick down a little bit, look at verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. See, Jesus is beginning to get the band together, right? Four brothers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, four ordinary fishermen. Jesus calls them, and and what's their reaction? How did they respond? Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Both sets of brothers immediately drop everything to follow Jesus. It seems like from how Matthew writes is that there's, there's no hesitation at all. Now, we don't know exactly what the interaction that the four of these brothers had had with Jesus beforehand, it's likely that they would have come across him and his preaching before this moment. But there's clearly something of the authority of how Jesus speaks and something about him that makes them go, he's worth following. He's worth dropping everything we have to go with him. That's the message of the king is, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's think about that a little more. Look again at who it is he calls. Two sets of uneducated fishermen from Galilee. Right? I imagine if you or I were to try and pick four people that we were going to um, go on an adventure with, I can guarantee you it wouldn't be them. These are the kind of guys who, in PE, would be picked right at the very end and would probably end up playing left back or being sat on the bench. Right? They were, they were nobodies. Normal fishermen. Jesus uses these unexpected people to do amazing things with him. 
everything the church has become today. Billions of people following Jesus. Churches everywhere you can see. All of that came about through the work of Jesus in ordinary, regular, not particularly special people. Listen, I wonder if there are some of us here this morning who think at times, what on earth can I bring to the table? How on earth could I be useful to God? What on earth can I do? Maybe there are certain things you find hard at praying out loud in the prayer meeting. Maybe there's things that you're just not sure where you're fit in to serve. Or maybe even the thought of telling someone about Jesus makes you feel physically sick. If that's you, then take encouragement from this. Look and see who it is, the kind of people that Jesus uses. If he's able to take a bunch of uneducated fishermen, work in them, and build his church from that, then he can use you in ways that you never thought was possible. All we're called to do is to follow him. Because notice what he tells those first disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, notice he doesn't say, you're already great influencers in this area. People pay attention to you. He doesn't say, you guys are so persuasive. You know all the answers. I want you on my team. No, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. See, Jesus' call to us is to follow him. As we follow him, as we see more of who he is, as we see more of what he does, he will be at work in us by the Holy Spirit molding us, shaping us, and turning us into people who can be fishers of men. And I see some of us, some of you are evangelists by nature, right? Naturally outgoing, love to talk to people, love to have conversations about Jesus, right? And that's brilliant. Some people are gifted particularly that way. But it, if that's you, then the danger is at times you can think, oh, look at me, I'm doing a great job for Jesus here. Look at all these people I've spoken to. Look at all the fruit we're seeing. I bet Jesus is glad to have me as part of his team. The challenge, if that's how you're wired, is to remember that it's only through the work of Jesus in your heart, in your life, that enables you to be able to do that. So remember that and give thanks that he's wired you that way, only because of him. But for those of us that find that whole idea of being fishers for people, to go and share the good news, for those of us that find that really difficult, we are all called as Jesus' followers, to share the good news, to partake in that great commission to go and make disciples. But first and foremost, Jesus calls us to simply follow him. And the more closely you follow him, naturally, by spending time with him, by growing in our love and knowledge of him, then naturally, the more likely you are to speak of him to want to tell others of all that you've experienced from him. It doesn't have to be in huge big conversations or in big debates, speaking out in front of big groups, but having small day-to-day conversations to tell people the good news of Jesus. See, this message of the king 
is for ordinary people. Ordinary people like you and I. His message isn't a demand, but it's an invitation. It's not a requirement to follow a set of rules, but it's an offer to come and walk alongside the king, to follow him and to be part of something greater. The message of the king is to repent, to turn away from the darkness and towards him, towards the light, to look to him for direction and for meaning and for purpose, to follow the example that he sets on how to live, to listen to his teaching and to put it into practice. The Christian life is following the king. But following Jesus isn't without a cost. Look again at what Matthew tells us about these two sets of brothers. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. See, these guys are willing to, to give up everything. They dropped all that they had to follow Jesus. And that wouldn't have been easy for them. Giving up their livelihoods, their business. James and John even leave their own father to go and follow Jesus. It can't have been easy. But even at this early stage, there was something in them that knew this was the right thing to do. You see, following Jesus will require some kind of sacrifice. For you to listen and to obey the call of Jesus in your life means that you will have to leave things and you may even have to lose things. Following Jesus will definitely mean leaving your sin, turning around in repentance as we've already seen, leaving your old life of sin behind you just like these guys drop their nets in the water. For some of us, we'll know exactly what that thing is. And the question is, Are you willing to drop it? Following Jesus definitely means leaving your sin behind, but it can also mean leaving stuff behind. Look at what these guys leave. They leave their nets, they leave their boats, their their entire livelihood, everything that they've worked for is put to the side because they choose to follow Jesus. For some of us, maybe following Jesus, being public about following Jesus might result in losing a job to take a financial hit, to go without something so that you can give to others. Following Jesus might lead you to giving up the comfort and security of an easy life to go and take risks for him. Following Jesus may end up in us losing stuff, but going all in for him, following him, may lead to giving up people as well. Again, it's James and John. Who do they leave in the boat? The dad, Zebedee. If you're going to follow Jesus, if that's to be your number one priority, then there may be people you have to distance yourself from because being close to them are going to stop you from following Jesus. That boyfriend or girlfriend who's not a Christian, that friend who's a, who's a bad influence, who you know if you spend time with them, you're tempted to go astray, the family member who pressures you into making bad decisions. And listen, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we've got to hide away from anyone else out in the world. We're not to be stuck in a holy huddle and only surround ourselves with Christians where it's safe and it's easy. 
as we've seen, we're called to be fishers of people. We're told to go and spread the good news. But if there are people who are close to you who are damaging your walk with Jesus, you may find that distancing yourself from them, even just for a short time, might be a wise option. But it may also be that following Jesus means people distance themselves from you. Following Jesus wholeheartedly means that there may be family members, there may be friends who will want nothing to do with you. They might think you've gone mad. You might even, they might even think that like you've betrayed them. See, following Jesus will be costly in one way or another. But the wonderful thing is, there is no sacrifice that you can make to follow Jesus that will not be worth it. There may be moments where it feels like giving things up, sacrificing, hasn't been worth it. Goodness me, the disciples sure find that out, don't they? As Jesus is arrested and led away to die, you remember they all scatter, they disappear, and and Peter, he denies even knowing Jesus. They must have been thinking, what on earth were we doing? Why didn't we just stay in our boats where it was safe? We gave up all of that, and now look what's happened. But as they meet the risen Lord Jesus face to face, as he gives them that great commission to go, to follow him to the ends of the earth, to share the good news, despite the fact that many of the disciples go on to even lose their lives, they did that because they knew that following Jesus was worth it. Because when you realize that the one that you're following has defeated death, who has gone from death to life and can bring you through death to everlasting life, then there is no sacrifice too great that you can make. We follow Jesus to his cross through the sacrifices that we make because we get to follow him to eternal life through his resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that we can say we love Jesus more than we love our sin that we so want to cling to. It's why we can say we love him more than our stuff. It's why we can say we love him even more than we love our family because he is the king who brings us eternal life. Friends, what a glorious king we have. A king who moves towards us in our darkness who doesn't leave us there, but who came to us in our greatest need and who brings us true and glorious light. A king whose message is to call us to repent, to turn away from our sin, and to follow him. A king who invites us in with open arms to follow him and to go on a mission to serve him and to make him known. A king who no sacrifice we make is too great for because we get to follow him through death into eternal life. And what we see in these last few verses, we don't have time to go into it now, but we see as Jesus goes through the towns and the villages in the surrounding area, healing the sick, helping the needy, healing the ill, the demon-possessed, making people whole again. See, what we see here is a, is a glimpse into that kingdom that is to come. 
bringing temporary physical redemption to the people as a sign of the complete and total redemption that is to come when his kingdom comes in all of its glory. Friends, the invitation is there to each one of us this morning. Will we follow him? Whether we've been following for years, whether we've followed him in the past and we've turned our backs, or whether we've never said we followed Jesus before at all, he calls you by name this morning. He wants you to let him bring his light into the darkness in your life. He wants you to follow him now on earth and he wants you to follow him through death into everlasting life. Will you follow him? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that even though this world is dark, Lord, that even though we have darkness in our own hearts, Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to bring light, to bring glorious light into the dark places. Lord, thank you that as we see Jesus, that as we follow him, that as we draw closer to him, Lord, that we can see more and more of just how wonderful he is. Lord, I pray that we would be people who follow Jesus, Lord, to listen to his words, who turn away from our sin and fix our eyes on him, who are willing to follow him, even though it may be costly, even though there might be things that we have to give up, things that we might lose. Lord, help us to remember that there is nothing that can compare to eternal life with you. Thank you that we can follow Jesus on that path. Help us to remember that and help us to long for that kingdom that is to come. Lord, where death will be no more, where pain and suffering will be no more, and that that was all achieved by Jesus. Lord, help us know that. Help us be encouraged and help us be excited and empowered to go and to be fishers of men, to want to go and to share the good news, to tell others all that you've done for us and all that you've done for them. Now please help us be your light in this town to be sharing that good news, even though we might find it hard, even though it's difficult. Help us first to draw close to you, to follow you, and out of that to share what we have. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.